0: Or the chance to gather in prayer, in the study of Scripture, in fellowship with one another in your name. And Lord, we are studying a very difficult passage today that uh, we want to understand. So open our hearts and minds to your words in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Yeah, if anybody skips got the extras here, um, When when I was in seminary, I wrote a paper for uh, one of my classes on this passage of Scripture. And then, trying to kill two birds with one stone, I published it as a CIC article. And so I thought I just, I can't, I wouldn't have time to do this detailed of a study for this Sunday school class. And I spent weeks on this and read about, I don't know how many commentaries and Looked everything up in the Greek, so I thought I can't do any better than I did back then, and this is on topic. So we'll, we're studying Hebrews six four through eight, and so in this paper I, I've highlighted some things that I'll point out to you. First of all, we want to look at what the issues are. Here, let me read the text. Um, Hebrews chapter Hebrews chapter six, starting with verse four. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened. And have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come. And when and then fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God, and put him to open shame. For the ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also till, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. So this is a pretty solemn warning. By the way, Dick Kuffel had asked uh, about warnings in Hebrews two weeks ago, and he said, what are the where, what are the five warnings? And he, he was laughing because he stumped me. I didn't have them all at the tip of my tongue. So I went and uh, looked them up. The five warnings in Hebrews are Hebrews two one through four. If you want to jot these down, five warnings against apostasy. Hebrews two one through four. Hebrews three twelve through fourteen. Hebrews six four through eight, which we just read. Hebrews ten nineteen through thirty nine. And the last one is Hebrews twelve twenty-five through 29 So there's the five warnings against apostasy in the book of Hebrews. So pretty clearly, this is an important theme of our book. I think the most important theme is the high priestly ministry of Christ. But on the heels of that, we have the warnings against apostasy. Now, in this particular passage, there are several... Issues and the as you read it, there are a couple of things that immediately stand out. First of all, it says for those who have once been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God. It would we would assume this is talking about believers, Alright? Now some people would deny that, but I believe that it is talking about believers. And then it has this word this horrible word, fallen away. It's one word in the Greek, fallen away. And so, this raises the question, is it is it possible for believers to lose their salvation? Is this what this is teaching? And then, even more uh, troubling, is then it says it's impossible to renew them. So, for people who believe that I know that, uh, when I was a fairly new Christian, the group I was with, they believed people were gaining and losing their salvation regularly. Some almost weekly. <laughs> they came back every Sunday night to church to get saved again. And, uh, well, and so they want to argue that believers can lose their salvation. If they're going to use this verse, they can't argue that you could lose it and then gain it back again. Because in this verse it says it's impossible to be renewed. So you wouldn't go to the altar on Sunday night and get it back. So this verse would be no comfort to that particular doctrine. As a matter of fact, I don't believe the people were actually gaining and losing their salvation, but they had a kind of a poor combination of doctrine and on one hand, a real weak view of the sovereignty of God, and on the other hand, a legalistic view of the Christian life with a bunch of lists of do, do's and don'ts. That beyond the Bible, and so if somebody did one of the don'ts, then they lost their salvation. And really, it's not a good way to live. It's just kind of a yo-yo existence. We need to have some sort of security in Christ, and I believe that we are offered that. So we need to address this, uh, situation in this verse and try to put it in a context. Now I've written this article here. Uh, is there, see if you got one more left? At least, uh, you want to give it to Tim here, or yeah, give if you got two left, give them to Tim and Donna, <laughs> so they they don't have to share. Okay,
1: <laughs> we
0: hate to see that happen. <laughs> they haven't been married that long to be sharing, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: All right. Okay, now. The first section in this article is just going to address the issues. And we're going to look up cross-references like we do in other lessons, but I'm going to just use this as a springboard. Previous state of apostates. Do you know what the word apostasy means? To fall away, to depart from the faith. All right? So there's a series of four participles here. Enlightened, tasted, made partakers, and then tasted again. Now, it says that the recipients of the epistle, that these things were true of them, the assumption is that it's true of them, because the warning is addressed to them. And I believe that it has to do with a personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ in um, salvation. Now, I said in the second paragraph, some suggest that these are not truly regenerate Christian because the, the word tasted is used twice, and they say taste is less than eat. But when we interpret the Bible, we don't interpret it in light of how we might use uh, a figure of speech, but what we want to know is how the writer of the Scripture used the speech and how it meant to them, usually in the Hebraic background. Now, does to taste here mean something less than to experience? Well, in order to um, find out, the first most important criteria is how the same writer used that word in the same Writing. That's the most important context. And it turns out that the writer of Hebrews used this word in Hebrews 2 and verse 9. And so, Brian, could you look up Hebrews 2 and verse 9?
1: But we are able to see Jesus, who was ranked lower than the angels for a little while, crowned with glory and honor because of His having suffered death, in order that by the grace of God, for
0: every individual person. What is that, the NIV? What version do you use? This is, uh, amplified. Amplified. Okay, it doesn't translate that word taste there. The <laughs> Not that we think your Bible's <laughs> defective.
1: <laughs>
0: but in that case, actually what happens when it says experience death, the Greek word there is taste. Oh, okay. And so what they're doing is interpreting it for you, and that's a correct interpretation. But the the Hebrews two nine in the New American standard says that he might taste death for everyone. Okay? So the Greek word is the same, taste. The NFE says taste. The King James say taste? Okay, so taste death. Now, here's here's what how you interpret the Bible by using these kind of techniques. So you're hearing a preacher and he said, Well, tasting oh, the Word of God isn't the same as experiencing, so this isn't for Christians. But you go and look at the same Greek word, taste, when it says Jesus tasted death, are we going to say Jesus didn't really experience death? Well, certainly we cannot say that. And so, being given the same usage by the same author of the same word, we have to say taste is a Hebraic expression that means experience. And that's how they used it. So, we have to reject that interpretation as not being in keeping with the context and the usage. So, taste means experience. Now, the, let's look up other passages where the same kind of Hebraic phrase is used. Um, dean, this Dean here. Now we got two deans. One Peter two three, Troy, John eight fifty two, and Peter, Psalm thirty four eight. These will give us more examples of the. How the Jewish people use the word taste. Uh,
1: 1 Peter 2 3. If so, if have
0: that You have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Does that mean you experienced it or not really? You experienced it. Okay? Same usage. John 8.52, Try. Troy. will never taste death, meaning experience it. Alright? And then Psalm 34.8 well, Taste and see
1: that the Lord
0: is good. The man trust in Him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, that doesn't mean don't really experience it. Just have a little nibble. <laughs> it means experience. In other words, put your trust in God and you will see that He is indeed good. Right? So, so, therefore, using the term taste to try to prove this isn't for Christians is not very good theology. Now, uh, and I pointed out some commentators think "enlightened" meant baptism, but I don't find any evidence that that's the case. I believe that it has to do with having experienced God's salvation. The gift from heaven is redemption in Christ. It says, having tasted of the heavenly gift and being made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Uh, So being made partakers of the Holy Spirit involves sharing this experience of being regenerate by faith through the Gospel. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when we repent and believe the Gospel. Peter said on Pentecost, repent and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is indeed addressed to Christians. And it's addressed to people who believe they are Christians and are quite confident they are Christians. So, uh, as Albert Barnes says, this is not language which can properly be applied to anyone but a true Christian. And though it is true that an unpardoned sinner may be enlightened and awakened by the Spirit, in other words, convicted, yet the language here is not going to describe somebody who is not regenerate. Okay? So the last of the four participles denotes the experience of the age to come, the powers of the age to come. Well, let's think about this a little bit. It's a, um, the New Testament uses this idea of the already and the not yet. George Eldon Ladd was the one who really did a lot of good theological work on this. For example, the idea of the kingdom of God has the kingdom of God come, or is the kingdom of God yet future? Yes, <laughs> that's the already not yet. We were talking on the radio yesterday. Did a few of you heard that, uh, Brian and I on uh, Jan's show, Brian Flynn. We had oh I have so much fun doing anything with Brian Flynn. Someday I hope we can get our own radio show. That w- that would just be a riot. Um, he he just saw. I don't know. We just clicked. But anyhow, we were talking about this idea of these mystics all use this one verse in a wrong way. They say the kingdom of God is within you. So if you want to meet God, you have to do a journey inward and then you get into your subconscious mind and you meet God there. And we were saying, no, you don't meet God inside yourself. You meet God through the Gospel. But this, what it really says in the Greek is the kingdom of God is among you. Alright? And so the kingdom was present in the person of Jesus Christ who is the king. And it does talk about being transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in Colossians. But on the other hand, the kingdom has not yet come because they asked in Acts, it is now the time to restore the kingdom to Israel. So the kingdom has been inaugurated through Messianic salvation. And people are entering the kingdom by the grace of God through the gospel. But there is the not yet that the age to come will literally have a restored Messianic kingdom. So it's already not yet. So having tasted of the age to come means that we've already received the down payment of our eternal inheritance, which is the Holy Spirit. And we've experienced a little bit of what this age to come is going to be like through our salvation and through our fellowship and through the Lord's Supper, which is a commemorative meal that's looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we're tasting of the powers of the age to come. And the Bible promises us that the real thing is going to. This is hardly even just a little bit. The real thing is words can't describe, and we'll find out when it happens. Are you ready, Brian? I'm ready. <laughs> Amen. This world ain't that great, is it? <laughs>
1: All right. You gotta really, you gotta really speak up.
0: You're sitting in Dan's chair here.
1: <laughs> you got a big, ja- yeah. You got to. i I'm not worthy. <laughs> All
0: right. If you, if you don't, if not been with us before, Dan is. We call him Thunder Dan. <laughs> when Dan speaks, everybody knows. All right. So we've tasted the age to come. Okay. So I'm making it up in the. Top right paragraph on the page one. I make a uh, summary here. It is clear that the author of Hebrews intended his readers to understand these terms as describing their experience of the gospel. The warning comes in the context of the author's concern about their complacency and unwilling to learn. Unwillingness to learn. The failure to press on in one's Christian life is seen as a temptation to go back. Also, the warning about falling away would make little sense if addressed to those who actually had nothing but an empty profession to begin with, it would make more sense to urge them to be converted. Although I having I wrote this in nineteen ninety eight, but when I read this last night again and did a little rethinking, I I think that maybe the warning would still be valid even if there's always unconverted people in the church that don't know they're unconverted. I think that's always been true and I think I don't think there's anything any pastor or elders can do some guarantee is not true. Because, you know, like Jesus, the, Judas was there and he was unconverted. And there's always going to be people who give mental assent to the gospel who are willing to live a Christian, semi-Christian lifestyle, you know, to a certain extent, but really haven't been reconverted. It, it's just part of the deal. It's, it's just the way the church is. And so knowing that to be the case... It's always important to preach to the choir because there's probably unsaved people in the choir. You understand what I mean? It's a figure of speech, preaching to the choir, because there are people in the pews, and and I think I know people who spent years in church thinking they were saved, and were later converted. Okay, ask Keith Gentoff about it. He, he's uh, got amazing. I'd like to get him on the radio sometime to tell his story. He's got an amazing story. But anyhow, the fact is that I think the warning against falling away actually could be used by God to convert someone in the church who really hadn't met the Lord. So having reread this, I think I would say it a little differently now. I think that even that kind of a warning is good for people in the church who may not yet be converted because God can scare the hellishness out of us. (laughs) <laughs> I borrowed that from Daniel Fuller, but I like that phrase. Alright. Okay, let's go on about this falling away now. Okay, but having established this is addressed to people in the church who have met the Lord, it's, it uses this Greek word that I have here, fall away. One word in the Greek, fall away. It's dramatic. It seems incongruous because it's in the context of blessed privileges. And it's shocking that to have that kind of an experience and to be that close and knowing the Lord and yet fall away is a shocking uh, thing that seems out of place. I point out that in the subtuagent, the term uh, for falling away has reference to uh, the expression of a total attitude that has to do with deliberate and calculated renunciation of God. And I want to emphasize this, that apostasy is not the same as backsliding. There are people who backslide in a sense that they, they grow cold in their hearts and they quit reading their Bible and they quit going to church and they quit seeking God. They know God's real. They still have faith, but they're just so... Pulled away from things. I've seen people get disillusioned because they get hurt by other Christians. Or they've, found they've had so many bad experiences with churches. They just kind of sit on the shelf. Um, but, you know, they're, they're punishing themselves in some ways by languishing so badly because you just get miserable when you do that. But that's not apostasy because a person is not repudiating their faith. They're just not nurturing their faith. Okay, And I believe such individuals certainly will come back or God will do something to get them back. But this is talking about something very, very serious. A deliberate and calculated and willful renunciation of one's faith in Christ.
1: Now, that could not just be an individual because there's the apostasy of the church as a whole. So, you could be looking at the deliberate watering down yeah. uh, of the word.
0: Walking away from the Gospel when you know what it is. Yeah. Yeah, You're thinking about Thessalonians passage, that there's this great apostasy. And then 2 Timothy predicts delusion at the end of the age, 2 Timothy 3. That's true. Here, though, it's addressed to individuals in the congregation, not the church in general. So um, uh, Lenski says this, There's no need to say more. This one word tells the whole story. It's tragic to the highest degree. Uh, if Dan was here, he'd t- probably tell the story of his... He has a guy, he still witnesses to him, but there's a, a guy that Dan Litsky knows who's an atheist who used to be a charismatic pastor in the Twin Cities. And he went. He his first it started with doctrine. I remember the guy back in the 70s when we were in the charismatic renewal. First of all, he went to some false doctrine and started teaching ultimate reconciliation. Uh, which means that the devil and everybody, even and everybody, will be saved. And then pretty soon he went further. And then that would and eventually he quit the ministry and renounced his faith and became an atheist. I met him. He came. Dan brought him to church here to an outreach. And God bless Dan. He's kind of loud, if you know how he how he is. And some people will feel like he just seems angry. But on on the street he is a compassionate man who who loves the lost. And I've seen him out there. It's just amazing. And he doesn't give up on his atheist friend. That maybe, maybe this isn't really true of him. Maybe he'll really come back. So I don't think we, since we know, don't know the heart. We can't assume there's somebody that can't come back that we know. It may be true, but we we can't know that. We always appeal to everybody until their dying breath to come to Jesus. Okay. So anyhow. Um, fallen away. Now, it says it's impossible to renew them in Hebrews 6.6. The reason for the impossibility is they brought shame to the Lord Jesus Christ. They put Him to open shame. Now, I think here there's a lot of allusions to the Old Testament. I mentioned that the the Greek word in the Greek Old Testament is used several times. Here's a couple passages. Peter, did I ever ask you to read that verse I gave you? Yeah, you did. Taste to see the Lord's good. I thought I forgot you. I thought I, I thought I made a mistake once, but it turned out I was wrong. Okay. Um, what passage am I looking for? Ezekiel 20.27. 20, um, do you want to take that one? And then Dean, Ezekiel 22.4. This is where that word apostasy is used in the Old Testament Greek Bible. Judith is going to do Ezekiel twenty twenty seven and dean Ezekiel twenty two four. They blaspheme me by acting treacherously against me, and the Greek word there is apostasy. They fell away. And why does that why is that blasphemy? We're gonna talk about this later, because most theolog many theologians, especially Reformed theologians, believe that apostasy is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and I agree with that and I'm gonna defend that position. But so blasphemy can be an
1: action, not
0: necessarily a verbal statement. Right. To to uh, what the Old Testament is talking about there in Ezekiel where it says they blaspheme, blaspheme me by acting treacherously is this, that the name of God was on Israel. And they are the people that he chose to show to the nations what God is like. They're to reveal to the nations that God is loving and merciful and holy. And so they bear God's name and people watch Israel and they learn about God. Because their number one role for Israel is to be God's evangelist. all right? Now, when they committed apostasy, they made the nations think that God was like idols, because they went to idols, and so in a sense, they blasphemed God's name by bringing open shame to God. That's what Ezekiel preaches like that a lot, that they that they actually have dishonored the name of God and brought blasphemy because his name now is dishonored amongst the nations. And the nations cannot know what God's like, like they're supposed to. Because Israel is, has the role of telling everybody who God is and what he's like. So that's why that phrase. Now we're going to look about how that's, that's applied there to the nation, but we're going to see when it's applied to an individual. Okay, Dean, uh, Ezekiel 22.4. The, I made a reproach. is that what it says? Or is, Yeah. Yeah, God was made to be a reproach. Isn't that something? Because of what they did. And so that's why God took action. Now, one of my favorite passages in Ezekiel, just so you know this isn't all just bad news in Ezekiel, is Ezekiel 36. And we quote that a lot when we debate with the replacement theologians. Ezekiel 36 says, because God's name is dishonored, He's going to take action and restore Israel and bring them to the land and give them a new heart and give them a heart to love Him. And He's doing that right now. So, that's Ezekiel 36. Okay, so apostasy is to fall away, to depart, to bring open shame. So now the Old Testament idea was, okay, The name of God was on Israel. They went after idols. They blasphemed God's name. So that's apostasy. Now, the New Testament counterpart in Hebrews is saying this. Christians bear the name of Christ. Okay, And we display something about Christ and who He is through our message and our actions. And when we depart from the faith, we bring we blaspheme, and I'm going to argue that, that it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and we bring reproach to the name of Christ. Just like the Old Testament Israel brought reproach to the name of Yahweh. So that's why this is so serious. That's why this warning is so horribly, horrifically serious. And we're to take it with all the seriousness that's implied here. God forbid that the name of Christ would be brought to open shame and that He might be crucified again. It says, because they again crucified to themselves the Son of God. The idea here is when Christ was crucified, what happened was He was exposed to public humiliation. They mocked Christ on the cross. If He is pleased with Him, let Him deliver Him now. If you're the Son of God, come down from that cross. They mocked and ridiculed Him on the cross. And what this is saying is that if we were to renounce our faith, blessing God, after having professed and experienced and known all these things, that Jesus Christ would be humiliated by us in the same way He was by those people who mocked Him when He was on the cross. Yes, Yes, that's in Second Peter 2. Is that in relationship? Probably, let's look it up. Second Peter two, I think we can find that. Yes, Second Peter 2. There we are, verse 20. See what? See my mind, it still works. <laughs> Some days. <laughs> Some days. Some other days the Rolodex is stuck. I can't flip through the cards. (laughs) Alright, here we are. 20. For if after they escape the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them it has happened to them, according to the true proverb: A dog returns to its own vomit. A sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Now, this is in the context of these warning about false prophets that will come at the end of the age, the end time delusion. Yes, Dan. Yeah, this is talking about people who have had much more than that. They've been enlightened. Now I'm going to. I'm going to. Well, I, I'll, I'll give you a preview of my position, and I and I want to say this also, that there are several. I, I list the three views that are most prominent on this. Mine is certainly not a majority report, and you can, you can feel free to disagree with me when you have a. A view, a passage that's difficult and there are different views on it. I can't demand that everybody says mine's right. Uh, I'll, all I can do is present evidence and um, you can decide for yourself what this means. Here's, but let me give you a preview. That's a good question. First of all, I'm going to argue that in the case of the truly regenerate, that this warning is a valid warning. That we should take with due seriousness, but that the warning is so good and so powerful that it actually scares us away from doing it that God uses the warning to preserve us all right but I will also argue that there are true apostates in the Bible, and there are they are the Judases of the world, and they are people that to anybody else's appearance, were indeed christians they were they were of us. They were with us, but not really of us, John said. But it's not apparent that they're not of us until they actually leave. And so that those kind of apostates, the Sauls and the Judases, do exist, and they do actually do this. So that's my argument. Okay. Okay, uh, let me repeat that because we got this on the tape. He said, that, "Don't you think that those people that are watering down the gospel are just?" You're saying they're basically deluded. They think you're doing God a favor, but they really aren't. I think that it's the case. I believe that a lot of the people that probably are influencing the most people sincerely believe that what they're doing is good and right. Uh, that is, well, there's still guilt there because they have the scriptures; they could check out and see what it says. Well, you know, I think that ultimately there's a continuum here and God's going to judge it and sort it out in the end that we can't now. You know, how far can... (laughs) I remember one time somebody came and asked, how sinful can I get and still be saved? I said, whoa, (laughs) just asking that question, you're on a slippery slope. What are you wanting to do? I want to sin as much as I can, but I don't want it to. I don't want to lose my salvation. Well, you no. Know, the question is, how holy can I get by God's grace? How can I progress and change? You know, now how can I escape my sin? Now, how can I do it? And, and so, uh, we're at, if we have this continuum, all right, which I believe there is, that there are degrees of reward. There are people that are extremely faithful to the Word of God and to the Gospel, and they walk it out by God's grace. Most of, unknown to us, because I think the greatest saints alive are, are unknown. Because they don't want any accolades of man, they're not in the public eye. I'm gonna preach on that from Matthew 23. On the other hand, there are p- very, very prominent people that have all kinds of things that are doing a lot of harm, sincerely, in the name of God. Now, do they know God or not? We can't see, we don't know the heart. If they profess that they believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, then they may very, may, or may very well be saved and they're just extremely confused and deluded and they're going to lose their reward and have it. Because it does talk about people saved as by fire, that their works are burned up, in, in, right? In 1 Corinthians 3. And there's still something genuine there. So we know that that can be the case. And then we also know there's wolves in sheep's clothing that inwardly are ravenous wolves that outwardly appear to be good Christians. And they're not really... That we can only know by the fruits. We judge people's teachings by, by the scripture and we look for fruits that God changes lives. But ultimately, God is the judge. So I would say that we can't actually always know these things about somebody else. So um, it's not matter what they teach. It's it. it their life. What they're living out. Well, it's both. It's, it's both, Pete. And I'm going to repeat the question. It's, he says it's not what they teach, but how they live it out. I think it's both. Because t- teaching is also fruit. Somebody's teaching is a fruit, according to Matthew 7 and, and Ephesians. It says the fruit, fruit of the light is goodness, righteousness, and truth. Okay, so teaching is a fruit. But also, so is behavior. So is our motives that, uh, People can see bad motives by what we do. I'm going to preach on that. I don't know you doing my sermon early, but I'll talk about that in James, because James James talks about the rich guy comes in and you go, oh hey buddy, you're my uh, I'm going to put you right here next to the preacher and you're you're important. And the poor guy comes in and you don't even greet him because they don't have anything to offer. Well, obviously your behavior shows you got bad motives. Uh, uh, first Lonnie and then Brian. Okay the question is how does this I'll, I'll rephrase it how does it shake out compared to calvinism and arminianism because a calvinist would believe that you don't lose your faith right and arminians typically believe that you do or can all right so how how does it shake out well here's the interesting thing when when i was doing this research at the, at the seminary you couldn't necessarily predict where how people interpret this verse based on their whether they were Calvinists or not, because, um, well, uh, Calvin himself, I think, believed that. I quote him in here. I think he believed that apostates were people that were like Judas, that were in the church and not of us. All right, but others that so Albert Barnes is hard for me to figure out. I think he was Calvinist, but Albert Albert Barnes from eighteen. 60 is the guy I found that agrees with me. So he must be right. <laughs> oh, no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, that, and, and, well, the position I'm espousing, I heard also from Daniel Fuller, who claims to be Calvinist. All right. Now, Arminians would probably more likely say people actually do lose their faith, but they don't particularly like this passage either because they believe you can get it back again. Okay, so this passage says it's impossible to renew them well, that's hard for Armenians to swallow because they believe in free will and so here's a person who no longer has any free will because they that that's it they can't possibly come back no matter what and so they, and they they kind of choke on the passage so like I said, it's a difficult passage for anybody, no matter what their theological background is It's still a tough passage oh uh, Brian, you were an I just accident
1: to say real quick, the, the last uh... The last paragraph in the Bible says, "Woe to those who change or alter this word." And and back to what Peter was saying, then those people are going to be teachers, preachers. They'll be judged in a harsher manner. Yes. Then, so whether they know that they're diluting the word or not, I don't think it matters. It's up to them to find out what the word actually. I totally,
0: I totally agree. I think the Robert Shulers of the world are in trouble. Yeah. You know, I don't think Robert Shuler has the liberty. To take the Bible out of anybody's church, including his own, but he's done so, and I think he's going to have to answer to God for that. Uh, and I think he's a prime example of it. You know, you, turn, you just turn on the Hour of Power and see how many times you ever hear the gospel. I saw Sammy Davis Jr. on there once.
1: So.
0: <laughs> okay, back. To, did you want to say something? Yes, sir. Yes.
1: Okay, Uh-huh.
0: Right. Okay. the Holy
1: spirit
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, you can get that out of the passage in Matthew where it says anybody speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit shall never be forgiven. Yeah, it's called the unpardonable sin. And I think it's true. I would agree that there's degrees of blasphemy. There's blasphemy that could be forgiven. Because I would say, for example, take these atheists that that had... I don't know if they still do this, but they used to do this. They'd have a meeting and they'd get up and curse God's name at their atheist meeting. They blaspheme God and say, "God, if you're alive, strike me dead." And when He doesn't do it, they say, "See, there's no God. We just proved it." But I think somebody like that could still be converted. That could be forgiven. That's blasphemy, but it definitely be forgiven. But this type here, it can't, because this is done by somebody who's a true Christian, right? A true Christian who knows better. The atheist might. Like Paul says, I was forgiven because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Yes.
1: Okay. I mean, I'm not, I'm not offering this as proof, but that is true.
0: Yeah, so, okay, they could use that to say, well, the Christian ended up back under the bondage of the hostile powers. Now they need a deliverance ministry. But, yeah, that would be, this passage is talking about apostasy. And not, uh, for example, the deliverance teachers often are saying that these things happen to you just because your great grandfather was cursed or something. And so genuine Christians that are seeking God, they put under bondage, uh, not just apostates, but yeah. Um, the Second Peter two passage is very important, and it's actually uh, parallel to Jude. Jude and Second Peter are very much almost like Synoptic Gospel type things, and they're both warnings against apostasy and false teaching they see coming into the church. And I think the people returning to the vomit are the people teaching these doctrines. <laughs> That's my opinion. So basically,
1: these are
0: people that are just sort of tag along.
1: They're not
0: really Christians. Well, the warning is addressed to people who are really Christians who would be tempted to do this. Okay?
1: I mean, if you're, if
0: you're really a Christian, how are they falling away? Well, it didn't say. It says, if you fall away, it'll be possible to renew you. Well, let me go on. I'm going to come up with a position here. All right, I told you where it is. We got about 10 minutes. I probably won't finish this. All right, now we're at page two. I know we won't. We got four on. We got the through one here. I see. I see. There's apostates at the top of the left. Are disillusioned followers. These make the best propaganda artists against the movement. Apostates bring continued shame and reproach to the Lord, and thus dishonor him in the most wicked manner. You know, sometimes I wonder about these evangelicals that reverted to Rome. The Roman Catholic Church puts them on their eternal word network and gives them the place of honor. Anytime they got somebody that goes back to Rome, they put them out there as their big spokesperson against the gospel. I don't know. I know a guy who did that. There's a guy on the eternal word that, that they used to come to meetings here at this church. They came, we had a pastor's meeting, and he used to come here. And it seemed to, as far as I can know, tell, was a very uh, sincere Christian who was a pastor of a church here in the Twin Cities. He's now on TV uh, promoting Roman Catholicism. Same guy. I see my TV I go, oh, I know that guy. What's he doing on there? He's on the Eternal Word. And he's one of their prime guys that they parade out whenever there's an issue. I don't know. Is that the same as renouncing the faith? Maybe not, but it's definitely the same as renouncing uh, salvation by faith alone and grace alone and the soulless. God knows, but He's not helping people meet Christ by telling them they have to join that pagan organization. All right, let's go on then. Well, I do quote Calvin. John Calvin says this. For he falls away who forsakes the word of God, extinguishes its light, deprives himself of the taste of of the heavens or gift, who relinquishes the participation of the Holy Spirit. Now this is holy to renounce God. We now see whom he excluded from the hope of pardon, even the apostates who alienated themselves from the gospel of Christ, which they had previously embraced, and from the grace of God. And this happens to none, no one but to him who sins against the Holy Spirit. Well, I think Calvin makes a pretty strong statement, doesn't he, Lonnie? Yeah, so he's not he's not being mealy-mouthed because he believes in the perseverance of the faith. He said this is what it says, and he issues a very strong warning. He also links this to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So what I think is a valid thing is that this is the same sin that Jesus was talking about that won't be forgiven, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's talk about that now. And... uh, and so, here Lenski says this, the word blasphemy is not used here as it is in the passages in the Gospels to speak about sin against the Holy Ghost. Now, I disagree with him, but to exposing to public ignominy. Uh, Deliberately sinning against God in full awareness, says Kistemaker, and knowledge of God's divine revelation, constitutes sin against the Holy Spirit. So, we have a disagreement. I think Lenski wrong. I'm going to agree with Kistemaker and Calvin. I believe that this is a sin that God does not forgive and that it is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. For this part, for the identification of apostasy of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can be found in the parallel warning in Hebrews ten twenty-six through 29 It says there, "...willful sinners are warned of receiving a more severe punishment than those who sinned under Moses because what they have insulted the Spirit of grace." So, apostates insult the Holy Spirit, trot underfoot the blood of the covenant, and crucify again the Lord Jesus and expose Him to open shame. How many of you know that's bad?
1: <laughs>
0: I think that that's bad. we could say amen to that. Do you think if you did that, it would be very bad for you? Yes, indeed. Now, I think a key Old Testament passage that helps us understand... Yes, did you have a Peter? yes
1: would immediately
0: know there they would know if they did it very
1: good point peter question
0: about whether not a gender i peter i agree with you he I'll let me repeat it he said somebody did this they wouldn't know it uh, by the way people who who struggle with fear that they've done this i generally just reassure them no you haven't because you you would be angry with god and cursing him or just departing and never to come back again. You wouldn't be in church praying, hoping you hadn't done it. Because only the Holy Spirit would lead you to want to repent of it. If you, if you feared that you've done it. So it's a good sign that you fear that you've done this. Only, not, not if it's continual fear, but if it leads you back to Christ, as it's God used the warning to preserve you from falling. So I don't back away from preaching on these passages for fear that somebody will come under condemnation. The passage is there so that people come under conviction. True Christians receive assurance through the gospel, but the passage needs to be preached because God put it in here in order to convict people that maybe are being a little bit wayward or a lot wayward to bring them back to the Lord. The actual apostate is probably somebody like this guy that Dan knows that says there is no God. He doesn't want to hear about it. He's happy to go about his life without God.
1: So he either can't be brought back or he was never truly saved.
0: Whatever his condition, we don't know. God knows. But if there's somebody that would fit this category, it might be him. A Christian pastor who now is an atheist, I don't know. You can't fall much further than that. Yes? Uh, In this scenario, that person is totally responsible for God, and I can't say, well, the devil did this, or I was tempted this way, or, you know, know, struggling. Or I tried to come back, but God wouldn't take me. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know that's true, Carolyn. She said it's always their responsibility. Yes, it is. But that's true for 100% of people on the human in the human race. There is never going to be a person who says, "Well, I'm not responsible." I mean, people say it, but they won't get by with it. Is what I meant. And to the person who believes them. Yeah, we are responsible for what we believe and what we listen to. And we're responsible to get ourselves underneath, under gospel preaching, in my opinion. I mean, even if you have to get it off of the internet, it's better to get gospel preaching than, uh, hog slot. One old Pentecostal preacher talked preaching on the prodigal son when I was a young, young lad, newly converted. He was preaching on the prodigal son and he says, if you put out the spiritual food, the sons will come. If you put out the slop, the pig will come.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you talking about the guy in the pigsty. yes. Is a region, I don't know, I
1: think the, the fact of the fallen angels and Satan falling from death, Is that like first apostate?
0: Yeah, Satan was the first apostate because he was a worshiper of God according to Ezekiel. He was he was he was a, he was a a archangel one of probably one of the archangels who was worshiping god and apostasized and it's impossible to renew him to repentance god's not even going to do so Same with the fallen angels so uh peter talks about that too about the fallen angels okay so the length. Oh, uh just a i don't have time but to describe this and then we'll go into it in detail. Numbers 15 distinguishes between the one sinning defiantly and the one sinning unintentionally. All right? Numbers 15, 22 to 31. And that's a good passage to study sometimes, Numbers 15. Because if somebody was defiant, and that meant, I have a right to do this, I don't need the Day of Atonement. I'm not going to go waste one of my sheep to bring an offering on the Day of Atonement because I'm not a sinner, I did whatever I felt like and God can't condemn me. It says that the one who does that is blaspheming God in numbers. He blasphemes God. He will be cut off. But the other person who maybe did a worse sin, but comes to God and says, I know that I sin and I know I need a blood atonement. Here's my sheep. Here's the... The high priest makes the offering on the Day of Atonement and says his sins will be forgiven, because he came on God's terms in faith. Right? And so uh I, I preached a sermon on this one time illustrating the difference between David and Saul. Saul's objectively, Saul's sin was less than David's. What Saul did was he went and made an offering because he got tired of waiting for the priest, and he took spoil when he wasn't supposed to. And for that, he ended up being lost. Alright? David committed murder. David had blood guilt. But David repented and confessed Psalm 51. And God forgave him. But what did Saul say? The people did it. I obeyed God and then he and so Samuel kept pounding on him. He says, "All right, I'll admit to you I sinned, but don't let the people find out about it." And then he built a monument to himself. All right? So, and it isn't like somebody that sins really bad can't be forgiven and somebody that didn't do too much well they that's easy for them. It's it's whether we see our need for this forgiveness through the Gospel and cling to it knowing that we're sinners. The blasphemer claims the right to reject God's offer, to reject the blood atonement of Christ. It's all based on the blood atonement, by the way, because it says in Hebrews 10, they trample underfoot the blood of Christ. In the day of atonement, number 15, the defiant one doesn't need a blood atonement, he thinks, so he was a blasphemer. So the ultimate blasphemy is to think you don't need it. When the warning of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was given to the Pharisees, they were rejecting the evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. And they rejected when He died for sins that, it would, that they needed that. That's how you blaspheme the Holy Spirit and end up lost. Alright, well, we've got a ways through this. Thank you for your patience. But it's a, uh, I don't think any Christian doesn't eventually end up asking this question because you run across this passage If it it scares you, that's a very good thing. (laughs) It should scare uh, scares me when I read that, and it should. And that's how God brings us back. Thank you for uh, joining us in the study of the Word of God.